Good morning. Hello, my name is Ronnie Rentz, and I'm a member here at Covenant Life Church. My wife, Christina, and I moved to Tampa uh, almost two years ago from Louisville, Kentucky, and our lives have been so blessed by the love of this church ever since. I work in student affairs as an assistant director for residence life at the University of Tampa, where we live in the residence hall with our three daughters, Phoenix, Flora, and Aurora. It is a joy to have the opportunity to preach the word of God for you today to those here and those watching at home. I know my mom will be thrilled that I finally made it on TV. <laughs> and I hope this sermon impacts you as much as it has impacted me in my study and preparation. So I think I was probably around 16 years old when laser pointers came out. And at the time, there was nothing cooler than a laser pointer. I would take my laser and use it at any top opportunity that presented itself. In fact, I would make opportunities to use my laser. I remember being at Taco Bell, and I used my laser to show my dad on the big menu what item I wanted. I would put the red laser light on the menu item I wanted. And the cashier jumped on the ground and yelled, Sniper! And thankfully, my dad was able to de-escalate the situation and get our chalupas. Another time, we were on a family vacation, and we were all staying at a beach house, and there were people walking by on the beach, and me and my sister would shine the laser light on people. And one particular time, I lasered them, and they dropped their bikes and ran away as fast as they could. We went down to investigate what had happened, and it turns out that the bikes were actually ours and that they were in the process of being stolen. I was just goofing off, and I had no idea that I was preventing our bikes from being stolen. And while this is just a small occurrence that may seem like a coincidence, I would imagine many of us have similar stories where an unexpected turn of events changes something in our lives. It wasn't our intent, and we didn't know where an unexpected turn of events would happen, but it impacted who we are. It changed the outcome of our situation. In the Christian worldview, we believe in a God who is over all of creation, all of time, all of history, all of the random elements in our lives. He is never absent in our lives. He is there in our greatest accomplishments, in our greatest trials and suffering, and he's even there in the strange prevention of bikes through laser pointers. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, said that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Today, we are starting a sermon series in the book of Habakkuk. And the prophet Habakkuk is trying to figure out how God is acting in his life and in the lives of his people. He is questioning God's orchestration of events, God's justice. He's wondering how God could allow certain things to happen things he did not expect, things he wished but were done differently, things he cannot comprehend. Habakkuk is asking a question that we can all relate to. He is asking God why. Habakkuk is crying out to God. Let us go to God in prayer, asking for the help to comprehend his answer. Father, thank you that you are present in all seasons of our life that you never forsake us and never fail to show your relentless love for us, that you are always at work even when we don't feel your presence or understand your ways. 
Thank you that you are just and perfect in all of your assessments of our human state and that you always want your best for us. In you, we have our hope, and through the cross, we have new life in Christ. Help us to see all that you have already given us by your grace and grow our faith and trust in you. I need your help, Lord. Help me to say what you have said in your word, nothing more, nothing less. Help us to know and to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the Old Testament of the Bible, we have a collection of books known as the Major and Minor Prophets, and Habakkuk is one of the 12 Minor Prophets. And they're not called the Minor Prophets because of their lack of contribution, but uh, because of their short length of the book. Not much is known about Habakkuk. The majority of what we know about him can be found in these three chapters. Given the time period, Habakkuk would most likely have been a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, and he is simply referred to as the prophet. Much like in the book of Amos, the prophet Amos is only referred to as a keeper of fig trees and sheep. The emphasis is on the message delivered and not the prophet delivering the message. The message is greater than the man. In verse 1, we see this message is an oracle. If you want to take your eyes to verse 1, we see it's an oracle. And some translations may use the word burden that Habakkuk received. This language is meant to indicate that once God has given a message, it becomes a burden on the prophet until they are able to announce it. In order to understand Habakkuk, we must understand the time in which he lived. During this time in history, Jehoiakim was the ruler of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was the son of the former king Josiah. And Josiah sticks out in scripture because he was a rare good king in a line of terrible kings who tried to change the evil trajectory of his people and bring them back to God. If we were thinking in terms of Disney movies and the Lion King, Josiah was the one Mufasa amongst a line of scars as rulers. Josiah strived to rule justly and made many reforms, but all of his changes went out the door upon his death in the ascension of his throne, Jehoiakim, to the throne. During Jehoiakim's reign, there was moral and spiritual corruption. Child sacrifices were given to pagan gods. Social injustice, the rich taking advantage of the poor, an economy in ruin, and an abandonment of God's ways and laws. Habakkuk is engulfed in this society. He's right in the middle of it, and the picture painted is grim. He is surrounded by it, and there's no justice at all. In this book of Habakkuk, it's a divine dialogue between God and man. And this exchange of words starts out with Habakkuk complaining, crying out to God, lamenting to God in chapter 1. And this sets the entire rhythm and flow of the book. Chapter 1, Habakkuk complains, and God responds. The end of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, Habakkuk complains again, and God responds again. And then lastly, we'll see in chapter 3, Habakkuk finally accepting God's will and responding in God to prayer, in prayer. As we go through our text today, we'll see the message outlined into two sections. The prophet's complaint in verses 1 through 4, and God's unexpected answer in verses 5 through 11. The passage weighs very heavy, 
as it deals with man's questioning of God and judgment. But from it, we will learn that God's ways may be mysterious or confusing, but they are always right. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 4 at the prophet's complaint. Habakkuk is confused and weary because of the sin of his people, and he doesn't understand how God is allowing it to continue. God, how God could be so inactive and unresponsive to the depravity that is all around him. Habakkuk is bothered to the core that God would let rampant wickedness go unpunished among his people. Take a look at Habakkuk's complaint in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? This is not a new concern of Habakkuk's. This is a repeated appeal to God, asking him to intervene day by day, unanswered prayer. Habakkuk's laments, driven to tears at the ruin of his people, and God does nothing. Habakkuk must have asked himself, how good, how could the good God I know allow this? Is there no justice, God? Why do you tolerate sin? How long? In verse 4, we see that the law is paralyzed. The Mosaic law that God had put there for the good of his people, that they were to live under, had little sway in their lives. Instead, they were living for their own greedy, self-centered desires. And while there was still a small remnant of righteous people, they were surrounded by this corrupt society. Even their own form of justice was twisted and perverted, which is no justice at all. Habakkuk stands out from most prophets that we read uh, because instead of confronting a people or a nation for their sin, he confronts God himself for allowing sin to continue. An important thing to remember as we think through these questions that Habakkuk is asking is that he knows God and follows God. And part of the reason he is asking these questions as boldly as he is, is because he knows God's character so well. Habakkuk knows that God is holy and just. And to allow the wicked to choke out the righteous among his own people is appalling. Habakkuk knew that God had made a covenant with his people, a promise to his people that this God that Habakkuk knew would always be faithful to his promises. Looking back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see where this promise is made with God, covenanting with Israel. Verse 1 starts out with the conditions of the covenant. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the, Lord, the voice of the Lord your God. And from there, it goes on and on and on, listing all of the blessings and benefits and, and just the mercy and grace that God would pour out on them if they walked in his ways. But in verse 15 of chapter 28, we see the flip side of this covenant. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And in the same fashion, it goes on to list curse after curse that they would receive for not following the Lord, for not obeying his ways. 
And it's with this covenant in mind and knowing the character of God that Habakkuk's theological understanding is not matching up with his experienced reality. From Habakkuk's point of view, it is as if God has disregarded his promises. As we contemplate Habakkuk's response to the moral erosion of his people, I couldn't help but think of our different responses to suffering and wickedness in the world around us. While we have many blessings and advances as a society today, it should not be hard for us to imagine a world filled with strife and corruption, just as Habakkuk's was. Do we not stand with Habakkuk wondering why? How did things get this way? Murder by the hands of law enforcement? The devaluing of human life? The warping of justice? Political division and toxicity? A pandemic causing lives to be lost, causing jobs to be lost. And these terrible things happen, and instead of uniting us as a people, the divide only seems to grow. And those are just weekly world events. Personal tragedies compound all of these things. You see the memes and the lists on social media of every struggle that has happened so far this year. Has 2020 given us hope that things will get better? Or has the crisis exposed the cracks that were already there? And what's even more heartbreaking as we observe Habakkuk is that the corrupt and violent people that, for whom he is crying out to God for justice were the so-called people of God. They were those of this very same covenant community that have become numb to the things of God. And while issues of injustice and cruelty in our world rage, our hearts are even hurt further by the issues within the church. This is not the pagan nation that we're talking about here. The offense is far greater because these were the people of God. They knew what was right. They knew, they knew God had delivered them time and time again, and they still abandoned his ways. And when we bring our context today, to today within the global or American church, where there's so much confusion, people clinging to false teachings and doctrines, shepherds and pastors who are wolves and charlatans, man-centered churches, the love of money, abuse of power, a worldly faith that you can treasure your sin and have Jesus too. Maybe you're hearing this and you're like, dude, Ronnie, come on, man. We're not sacrificing our children to pagan gods. In some ways, our sin is not like theirs. In our modern society, our falling away from God can be more deceptive. We're not running to a local, local pagan idol store to worship, but we can certainly treasure them within our hearts, and we can drift, and we can mingle the world's ways with God ways, God's ways. If we're not careful, we can begin to hold our American values, our democratic values, Republican, libertarian values, or just our own personal philosophies and happiness in higher regard than who we are called to be in Christ. And those identities begin to shape who we are and how we live, numbing us to the ways of God. And while some can relate easily to the cries of Habakkuk, to the injustice of his day, I think there's another response that we need to be aware of in our particular context. Instead of crying out to God to heal our injustice 
Maybe there's a temptation and an opportunity afforded to us to just tune these issues out. Wealth, privilege, and affluence can seemingly sanitize things in a way that detaches us from the reality of our world. Maybe we are not bringing these things before God because our heart is not soft to them, or we think that we are sufficient in our own power. We can make ourselves busy with things that replace all of the suffering and hurt. If we can just renovate the ugly parts of our life and clean up ourselves and surround ourselves with enough nice things, the issues of the world seem to fade away. And we can fail to see rightly the world around us that so desperately needs the love of Jesus. Our biggest complaint becomes that our Amazon packages get here in four days instead of two. We can become more evangelistic about our diets and workout routine than we can our Savior. We can become numb to the things of God and fail to ache for this world to know the love of God and be content to live in our little bubbles of self-sufficiency. Something that has been on my heart lately is my recent discovery of the amount of traffic, human trafficking that happens within the Tampa Bay area. Statistics tell us that Florida is the third highest ranking state where human trafficking takes place. And if you just do a Google search, you'll see a prevalence of it in Tampa. People, image bearers of God, many times children from ages 7 to 12, are sold into modern-day slavery to a life full of mistreatment and abuse. This is in our city. This is in our state. And I think to this next year in the upcoming Super Bowl that is coming to our city, which is one of the world's biggest events and hotspots for trafficking human lives, all while a spectacle is being played, a game is being played, and we are entertained. I wonder sometimes if these kinds of things are even on our radar. Fighting against injustice, standing up for the oppressed, these are our responsibilities as Christians. Let us be anything but numb to these things. I was speaking to a non-Christian friend last month and was surprised to hear him share his frustration with his, in his experience. There was no on-ramp to Christianity. Either you are all in and part of the Christian club or you are on the outside looking in. There could be no room for doubts and questioning in his eyes and he was ostracized because he was not taking everything blindly and accepting it. I was so saddened to hear this and I don't want us as Christians to ever forget the great task we have been called to. Brothers and sisters, we are the on-ramp to Christianity we are called to selflessly give of ourselves and to pursue others with the love that we have been given. We are called to fight injustice and something we need to ask ourselves as God's people today, are we too tolerant of the things that are contrary to God as revealed in scripture? While we are far away from Habakkuk when we consider time and geography, we are not all that far away when we consider our spiritual condition. We can be just like the unfaithful Israelites. 
and you see the Israelites in the kingdom of Judah, they thought that they were good because of their status as God's people. But their status was in name only because their actions and their heart did not reflect him. They had abandoned God's way and they thought that they would always be redeemed because of all that God had done for them. But they were taking this heritage for granted. And as we will see in the coming verses, God will judge them for it. Fellow Christians, do not take your heritage for granted. You were bought with a price, and you have a God-given calling on your life to shine light into this world. So we can identify with Habakkuk's response to injustice, and we can be numb to the injustice around us, or maybe it's not even a question we think to ask. Maybe we don't even ask God these questions. Maybe we're here today and you're not a Christian and you haven't been trusting in the promises of God and you ask yourself, man, how did things get so bad? How are we going to fix this world when the solution does not seem to be obvious? If the answer is just everybody loving everybody and being kind to one another, don't you think we would have figured it out by now? Maybe if we listen to more Beatles albums, As a society, it seems we can't even agree on a definition of love, of what true love is, how to love each other best, how to care for one another. We need something outside of ourselves to save us, to change us. We all have a sin problem that cannot be cured no matter how much education, how much willpower, how much policy changes or money we invest towards it. It took the sacrifice of Christ to atone for the sins of man. And God sent the son to die, taking on our punishment. And by accepting this gift of divine redemption and by turning from our ways and living in faith in him, we are changed and we are able to love rightly and to display the, the love that the world is missing. We need divine love in our lives. In Christ, we are able to sacrificially live because Jesus gave it all for us. And Habakkuk's complaint against violence finds its strongest ground in the violence that was done to Christ. God didn't just let his people suffer even though they had brought it upon themselves. Jesus suffered for us so that we would be saved from our sin and self-glorification. We need a heart change and Jesus made that possible. Turn to him. Live in Christ. And my non-Christian friends, two things. I'm sorry if you haven't always seen the love of Christ in Christians. We can be just as prone to be the people of God in name only. And my hope is that you would be able to see that there is something different about those that truly are Christians. Not in and of themselves, but because of who they serve and how he has changed their hearts. And second, it should never be wrong to ask questions. Especially in the church. We should welcome it. How else are we to grow and learn? I encourage you skeptics to ask questions, talk with believers, investigate the word of God yourself. It will stand up to your scrutiny. Truth always stands up to scrutiny. It should never fear scrutiny. And to my questioning believers who are crying out to God, we can question God, but we should always question in faith. 
One commentator summed it up well. Habakkuk teaches us that questioning God is acceptable. It is refusing to trust God that is our downfall. Habakkuk knows God and is convinced of his faithful character, and that is why he asks these questions. Even in asking, Habakkuk has faith that God will be true to his word. Go to him in faith, assured of his character and knowing that our trust can always be found in him. Habakkuk goes exactly where he needs to go with his concerns, and we should not hesitate to bring ours before God in prayer. In our distress, do we go to God seeking answers from the source, or do we withdraw or seek other means to fix our issues? Cry out to God. Habakkuk is open and honest about his fears and his struggles. He does not hesitate to question God amidst his plight, and neither should we. The key verse of this entire book of Habakkuk, which we'll see in greater detail in the coming weeks, is found in chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. The righteous but the, I'm sorry, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous and unrighteous will both ask questions of God, but the righteous should always ask in faith. We can question God, but we should always question with faith, believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised. As we transition from Habakkuk's complaint to God's response, Um, or from the complaint to God's response, it is evident that Habakkuk does not think that God is hearing his prayers, is hearing his cries. But we will see by God's response that unknown to the prophet, he has already begun answering them. Let's take a look at God's unexpected answer starting in verse five. In our previous verses, Habakkuk has been speaking to God on behalf of his people. Now God responds, not just to Habakkuk, but to all of the Israelites. God draws Habakkuk's perspective away from what is directly before his eyes, instructing him to look among the nations. And in what has got to be one of the most hope-deflating fake outlines of all time, God says, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You can just kind of see Habakkuk hearing this line and getting excited and thinking God is going to take away all his misery and struggle. He says, oh, great, I can't wait to see what the Lord is doing. Happy Habakkuk. And the other shoe drops in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were an up-and-coming empire, and they were more commonly known in history as the Babylonians. And God is letting Habakkuk know that he is not absent and that this nation is going to be used as God's instrument and they are coming to judge the Israelites. And the rest of our text goes on to describe the viciousness and the cruelty of these conquerors. This is terrible news from Habakkuk's point of view. Look at how the Babylonians are described, starting in verse 6. That bitter in hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Babylonians, they would go and they would take and pillage whatever they wanted. 
In verse 7, we see they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They were not bound to any law. They created their own laws, and their only pursuit was their own dominance. In verse 8, we see that their horses and cavalry were so fast and mighty. It was as if they were flying. They were faster than leopards. This idea of the fierceness of the evening wolf, the picture conveyed is of a wolf who hasn't eaten all day, and in its fasted state, its senses are coming alive at night to hunt its prey, to hungry and to devour them. In verse 9, we see they all come for violence. These were not, they were not going to war begrudgingly. They lived for it. Their faces were forward, riding with no fear of an enemy or their flanks being exposed. They were total offensive onslaught. And the troops rode as a horde filled with bloodlust, and they would take so many prisoners, it is said that they gathered up captives like armfuls of sand. And the Babylonians did not care about other authorities. In their eyes, they were the only authorities that mattered. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth and take it. To take cities, they would pile up mounds and mounds of dirt and create these earthen ramps so they could run up the ramp and jump over the walls and to take and conquer the city. And then 11, they sweep by like wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God moving on quickly from one city to the next, like a hurricane that is never slowed, causing destruction wherever it goes. God even says that they are guilty men whose only allegiance and only worship is their own might. Habakkuk has been crying out to God. He has been asking for violence to end, and Habakkuk has yet to see the violence that would be coming, that God was going to bring his way. This would have been a gut punch to Habakkuk. He was already grieved, asking God, how can you idly look at wrong, accusing God of doing nothing, and then it's made worse by God's response. This is kind of equivalent to one of my daughters coming to me, and they're saying their arm hurts, and I have to do the obligatory dad joke thing and, and say, oh, it looks, looks like we're going to have to cut it off. Uh, we got to amputate the boo-boo. It's the only way. To Habakkuk, the cure is worse than the disease. He is struggling to understand what God is doing. Wait, wait, God, you're doing what? You, where is justice? They are worse than we are. And you're going to use them to judge us? There's a couple things I want us to observe as we look at God's response. In no way does God dispute Habakkuk's assessment of the Israelites. God does not scold Habakkuk for his accusations against him. In fact, God agrees with Habakkuk. And he sees the problem that Habakkuk is complaining about as worse than Habakkuk does. He is not distant. He is not uncaring about Habakkuk's suffering. He had been orchestrating this divine plan the whole time. In verse 5, God tells his people to look on the international horizon 
and they must expand their perspective on the divine purposes of God. And I just want you to take a moment and picture as best as you can from our limited perspective what it must be like to see things from God's point of view. Imagine the perspective of God. We think of ourselves and we think of our perspective all the time. We see what is fair and what is just to us. Imagine where God sits over all of time and eternity, over every nation and peoples, over all of history. As I pondered this, I couldn't help but think of my wife in her relationship with our children. We are blessed uh, with three awesome, creative, and fun daughters, and they have unlimited energy, and they're one, two, and four years old, and they can be demanding at times. Sometimes they demand things from Christina, and they've got it down to a science. They don't even have to use audible language or sentences anymore. They just use one-word responses. Play, play, thirsty, thirsty, hungry, hungry. And they yell it over and over and over again until someone fulfills their desires and gives them what they want. They want what they want. And they sometimes don't have much regard for all that their mother gives them how she loves them and tends to their every need, how she disciplines them, and at times withholds things from them for their own good. Our kids don't always know what they need. We try our best as parents to reframe their expectations and encourage gratitude and to consider others, and they begin to understand all of the ways in which their mother loves them. And if we, as Christians, we can know that our spiritual father is always caring for us, even in our suffering and in our judgment. Do you acknowledge the ways that God has cared for you already? Do you see that everything you have is because he has provided it for you? God has the full picture of our lives, and God wants his best for you. Another thing to notice is that God knows exactly who the Babylonians are. He is not surprised by their lawlessness. And he goes on to describe their evil, godless ways. And at this time, the Babylonians were not as well known in society. They were becoming a major power. The Assyrian Bab um, Empire was fading, and the Babylonians were ascending. They're growing in strength. And they had this quick rise to power, and as we'll see Later in this sermon series, a quick fall, which highlights for us the divine influence in God using this nation as his instrument of judgment. Ironically, the Babylonians are now in the role of Israel, the role that Israel once played in displacing nations. And these Babylonians would not be left off the hook. As we'll see in chapter two, they would be judged as well. But judgment has to begin with the house of God. Habakkuk doesn't understand why this is happening. He is confused and distressed, but he knows the character of the God he serves and that he can be trusted in every season of life. You may ask, what kind of God could wipe out these peoples? We saw earlier in Deuteronomy that God had made a covenant with his people and that God keeps his promises and he is just. We have such a limited vision. 
From Habakkuk's point of view, this injustice had gone on for far too long. And yet God has endured with much patience, waiting until his perfect time to enact justice. God's ways may be confusing, but we can rest assured that they are always right. One temptation we want to avoid as we think through world events is attributing a specific reason to God. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit and all these pastors and teachers were saying that it was the judgment of God on New Orleans for their voodoo and occult practices. We don't know that. I remember a prominent Christian on a football team and I was somewhat new in my faith and I always thought because, I won't mention his name because he's a gator, but um, I just thought that he would always win because he had God on his side. And, and then I remember when his team met another team with Christians on it. And then I was like, what's going to happen? What's God going to do? Are they going to tie? <laughs> we don't always know how God is working in history or know why something is happening but we do know that God has not forgotten his people. Even when it feels like our prayers go unanswered, we can trust in him fully. He is always acting. And if we are in Christ, we can be assured he is always acting for our good. Those football players, those Christians can learn maybe even more in losing. God can use use and grow them in losing just as much as winning. When suffering hits us, it may be hard to comprehend. We may feel slighted by God. But maybe there are areas of disobedience that God is seeking to grow us in. He may be acting to save us from our love of self and dependence upon things. He may be drawing our focus away from the world into ultimate fulfillment with him. God has worked in the past to secure the salvation of his people, and he is working now to sanctify us. And to grow us. I just imagine the people of Israel living their everyday life, squabbling over the issues of their day, all the while unknown to them, God is raising up this heathen nation to judge them. This should hit us with some urgency, maybe not of a conquering nation, but of God's justice and orchestration of events. It should make us ask, what are we living for? What occupies our times, our thoughts, our motivations? Are, are we as God's people fallen asleep? If you knew as Habakkuk knew that judgment was coming, how would your life change? Through God's word, we know that judgment is coming. God is judging the Israelites and God would judge the Babylonians and God will judge all of us. Justice and judgment will come for everyone. We read in 2 Thessalonians 1.7, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. We can cringe and recoil at this idea of judgment, But God is perfectly just, and he would cease to be God if he did not execute justice. Judgment is coming, brothers and sisters. 
And just as God would raise up this nation after enduring patiently with the disobedience of Israel to crush them in judgment, God would send Jesus, the sinless Savior, to this earth to be crushed so that we might know life and be spared from the judgment. We are saved from the wrath of God. God has given us a way to him in Christ. God confounds our human wisdom through strange and confusing events, bringing about his will. And he is doing a work in our days that we would not believe if told. God, Christ was murdered by his people. And through this historical event of Calvary, just as God orchestrated, he rose again and defeated sin and death. Can you imagine being there as a disciple of Christ, as this perfect, sinless, selfless man is murdered, yelling, why? Where is justice? Why, God? God used this strange and confusing event, a crucified Savior, a suffering Messiah, to bring about his means of redemption. John Allen of the Salvation Army once said, I deserve to be damned, to be in hell, but God interfered. And as Christians, every one of us could truly say precisely that. I deserve to be condemned. I deserve to be in hell, but God interfered. And thank God he did interfere. Praise him. In Christ's sacrifice, we are given a relationship with God. Our lives have a new and greater purpose. We get to share the love of Christ with this world. We are filled with the Spirit of God. We are given uh, the heart of God to fight injustice and to share our faith. We have the answer in Christ. God was using something that confounds the wisdom of men, something that humanity would never pick to redeem themselves. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And whether you are a Christian or not, here today, you are not your own. You belong to God. And God is working in each of our lives, lavishing us with grace that we don't even know. So many of us could speak to a time in which God has worked something in our lives that was unexpected, something that if we had our way, we'd have never come out on the other side as we are. And there will always be questions we ask in life, as sure as there will be confusion. We can question God, but we should always question with faith. And know that his ways are right. We can know that even if it seems like God is absent, God is always working in our lives to get us to where he wants us to be. And even in our doubt, we can be assured that God's ways may be mysterious and confusing, but they are always right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, help us to see as you see. Give us eternal perspectives. Lord, help us not to waste our lives. God, help us to be your church. Help us to love this dying world. Help us not to 
to gather all the light and all the riches that we have in you and to not live that out in faith, not to, to pull others in to share the love that we have been given, God. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you that we, we know this truth, Lord. Help us to live as you would have us live. And even in your judgment, God, thank you for growing us and caring for us and, and that, um, that you spared us from this judgment through the gift of your son. In your name I pray, amen.